This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. A reading from the from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also had ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Imagine that you were given a tablet or smartphone, brand new, top of the line, and you were handed this device and sent out of the store, and it was free, and it was wonderful, and you were delighted, and you were ready to explore all that it could do for you, but you were not given a power cord. You were given no means to up the power supply and to recharge the batteries, and so you go out of the store, and you go off to your car, and you're making your way, and... You flip on your YouTube app, and you start to watch, and just as you make it through the five-second little ad, and you're ready to watch whatever video you want to watch, it blips out. Or you flip on your map, and you're on your way to a party or to the beach, and as soon as it puts you on I-4, it blanks out, and you're just stuck on I-4. You don't know where to get off. A phone, a tablet demands energy, it demands power, it requires sustenance, and so do we. And this Sunday, Ascension Sunday, is a reminder, I think, of how we oftentimes overlook the sustenance we need and the power Christ supplies. Thursday, we marked 40 days since we celebrated Easter, when Jesus rose from the dead, when he came out of the tomb when he defeated death. But of course, the New Testament tells us that the story doesn't end with Easter. The story doesn't end simply with his defeat of death, but he marches on alive and active. And as you read in Acts 1-3, he stayed with his disciples. He appeared to them in many times in various ways, and he spoke to them concerning the kingdom of God. And 40 days later, he ascended on high. And it's that ascension that we just heard of in Paul's writing to the Ephesians in chapter 4, this notion that having descended, Christ has ascended on high. And this morning, I want to spend a little time looking at what Paul says there regarding how the ascended and exalted Christ doesn't just start the Christian life, but he sustains the Christian life, and how his grace is not simply the inception or beginning of our journey with God, but it goes along and provides for us all the way through. And so there's three things 
that I think we can catch from these few short verses in Ephesians 4. And the first is that the gospel story is told in remarkably short form here in the first few verses. We see a story of Christ who goes down and up but is always giving. So if you look at Verses 9 and 10, for instance, there's this parenthetical reference. Paul's begun speaking, and then he backs up and he says this. He says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. And this is a regular rhythm of the Bible. It's a regular rhythm of the Bible because it's normal Uh, vocabulary for life. When we speak of entering into glory and joy and success, we speak of riding high, of ascending the ladder. When we speak of struggle and frustration, of misery and of difficulty, we speak of being down. It's not for nothing that perhaps the most famous psalm speaks of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And so the Bible, like human culture, speaks of glory as on high and of death as down in the dumps of the valley of the shadow of death. And here Paul uses that imagery. He uses that imagery because he's drawing from Psalm 68, a psalm of victory, of triumph, where David, the king, has conquered foes somewhere off and about, and he's returning in glory. When he returns in glory to Israel, he journeys up to Jerusalem, to Zion, to the city of God, which is atop a hill. And Psalm 68 describes him entering in, and there's a parade. There are folks lining the streets, as it were. They're making noise. They're, they're, they're throwing things about in celebration. And the king and his army journey in and are exalted as they ascend on high to the holy hill. And it's a reminder Paul's using to to remind us of that strange message, the mystery deep in the gospel, that we live in the lower regions. This is it. When you experience doubt and struggle that you're going to be able to improve, you're in the lower regions. We live in the lower regions. When you experience that incessant addictive temptation that you just can't get over with, that's the lower regions. We live in the lower regions. When you feel clouded and overwhelmed and you don't know what wisdom would have you do, you don't know what it would mean to do the right or the good thing, you're in the lower regions. When you experience sin without and sin within, when you fear the death that lingers all around you, you're in the lower regions. And the gospel tells us that God, the God on high, has descended. He has not waited for us to figure it out. He has not waited for us to triumph on our own. But he has entered into the fray. He has got skin in the game, as it were. He has come in and assumed our misery and our plight, our sin and our guilt. But he's triumphed. And the one who's come down has now gone up. And he's exalted. He's ascended. He is that Davidic king who has conquered the foe of death and is seated on high. And so verses 9 and 10 here really tell the gospel story of Jesus and his triumph in just remarkably brief fashion. 
This image of suffering and then glory, of death and then resurrection, of descent into our plight and then ascension into God's joy. But there's something fascinating, a little twist in how Paul tells the story. And it involves a twist to the text that he's quoting. He's quoting from Psalm 68. And if you were to flip over and read Psalm 68, you would hear of this Davidic king coming in, being celebrated, going up onto the holy hill, and of sitting down and of receiving gifts from those around him. And it's a, a picture that actually is pretty standard and typical. When someone triumphs politically or militarily, envoys and emissaries come. And, and we still do this. It's sort of uh, completely symbolic today. Uh, but on an inauguration day, you continue to see this, that ambassadors and uh, ministers of state will come from foreign lands and they will bring gifts to celebrate and to honor the newly installed leader. Now, back in the day when David was king, they did this as a way of sort of maintaining quid pro quo. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. You've just wiped out neighbors over there. I'm going to bring you gifts so you don't attack me. It's, it's a survival mechanism. It's a, a way of currying favor with the king. And so it's not surprising in Psalm 68 when David sings of God's king triumphing in some military skirmish and being exalted and celebrated that the nations would bring him gifts. That ambassadors from all over would come and celebrate him. That's normal. But that's not what Paul says here. Paul turns one phrase. Quoting Psalm 68 here, he says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, Paul is not denying what the psalm says. It's not that Jesus doesn't receive all glory, laud, and honor. But Paul wants us to know that not only in coming down into our plight, but also going up into God's glory, Jesus is all about giving. He wasn't just a servant when he was here, kneeling down and washing feet, or standing there, hands outstretched, dying for your sin. But even now, as he sits at the right hand of the Father on high, he is giving and gracing. He is in the business of blessing others. And so his exaltation simply moves his giving into another sphere where he continues to give gifts. And notice what it says in verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The exalted Christ is measuring out the portion of grace that you need. The Christ who dies for all our sins on one tree, on that one day, is constantly assessing the strength you need, the power you require, the insight you demand, the instruction you yearn for. He is apportioning out and rationing that grace according to the measure that he sees. And the Christ who died for everyone is personally giving to each one of us grace upon grace. And so the first thing that we see here in Ephesians 4 is that with the exaltation and the ascension of Christ, he continues to grace us. 
And so we can speak of the gospel in the present tense, of ways in which Christ continues to pour out grace on his people, not just to start the Christian life, but to sustain the Christian life, that we might have power and that we might have knowledge, that we might journey forth in faith and love. There's a second thing I think we see here, though, and that is that Paul, in verse 11, specifies one of the gifts of the exalted and ascended Christ, one of the ways in which he graces and sustains his people. This isn't the only one. There are other gifts given. So in Galatians 5, you hear of the fruit of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians, you'll hear of eight or nine gifts of Christ. But here, he pulls out the gift of the Word for our attention. You see in verse 11, he says this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. These five offices, these five ministries that are gifts of the risen Christ, means of grace to sustain people on the journey. And I think this is something that addresses a deep, deep fear that we have a deep struggle we all experience. I remember when my oldest son Jackson was rather young, right off the bat we knew he was a runner. If there's space, he roams, and if there's not space, he makes it. And so he journeys about and goes on his way, and sometimes my wife and I would sort of allow him to roam and just to observe what happens. And I remember one time we were in a shopping center in Fort Lauderdale, and he was a really little guy. And we were roaming through, having just let, left a store, and he bolts. And we sat back and we just said, all right, we're, gonna, we're just going to keep an eye and see what happens. Sort of sociological experiment here. And so we kind of tuck ourselves around a corner and peer, and, and I mean, he journeys off. He's window shopping to the right. He's people watching to the left. And, and he goes a long way. And of course, it's pretty funny because you observe other adults sort of watching the two-year-old stroll about and so forth. Um, and eventually, you realize that he's, he's been absolutely delighted. He's having the time of his life, and then he stops. He finally realizes that the freedom he's enjoyed means he's absolutely alone. And this kid who has been bounding about with speed and joy and happiness and freedom is completely fear-struck. And he doesn't move another inch. And we have to swoop in and comfort him. That's us spiritually, isn't it? We love to roam. We love the notion of the open field. We revel in the idea of freedom and being unbounded. All the way up to the point where you realize you are all on your own. And no one seemingly is there to help and you can't move your feet, and your palms sweat, and your heart starts beating a bit faster, and you lose your sleep at night. God, God doesn't simply grant us freedom to begin the Christian life, but God journeys with us like the cloud leading the Israelites on their way out of Egypt and unto Canaan, like Jesus not simply calling disciples away from their old occupations and their old life, but leading them on into the glory of the kingdom of God. God 
gifts us through his word. And here he gifts us, he graces us by providing these officers, those who will start churches, apostles and prophets and evangelists, and those who will sustain and guide churches in the long run, the the pastor, shepherd, and the teacher. We see that he provides for the beginning of the Christian life, and he continues to provide for the growth and the flourishing of the Christian life. Reminded of, of something that the Jewish theologian Martin Buber said as he was commenting on biblical leadership. He says, biblical leadership always means a promise of being led. And he was not referring to the congregation or the assembly. He was referring to the leader. What's notable about each of these five offices is not that they are guru figures. It's not that they're authorities. There are other words out there for kings, for governors, for those who would be mayors or authority figures. But each and every one of the terms used here in verse 11 is a term that itself involves being led by God. Each and every one of these terms used involves leadership of a very particular sort. Not of an entrepreneur, not of an inventor, but of someone who trades in the word. Of someone who is themselves led by God's word, directed by God's word. This is why Eugene Peterson speaks of how Ephesians 4 speaks of the, the purification of means. That Christ doesn't just purify Christians, but he also purifies the means by which we're strengthened and built up. We, we think of the charismatic figure. We think of the creative class. We think of the person who's going to invent and entrepreneurially design a way that the church will flourish and disciples will be made and will be strengthened and provided for. And God gives people who pass on his word because there's power in the word. God addressing a group of beleaguered and tired and struggling Hebrews, probably in Rome, in Hebrews 4, reminds them that the word is living and active. They needed a lot. They were being persecuted from without, and doubt was festering within. They needed strength. And they were having to negotiate some really difficult cultural situations as they were being oppressed and somewhat overwhelmed at times, and as some were tempted to to go back to their old life. So they needed wisdom. And God doesn't send them some inventive, creative type, but he reminds them that the word is living and active, and that they're called to the ministry of exhortation, of being called back again and again to God's word, which strengthens and guides I'm reminded of a story a friend of mine told, a pastor friend. He was driving, and I gather, I don't think I'm speaking out of term here, when I, I say he was driving a bit fast and perhaps slightly aggressive through a city street, and he's going to dinner one night, and suddenly he sees a parking spot on the side, and, and he may have veered across a couple lanes to, to snag it, and in so doing, perhaps he cut off another car. And it's in the busyness of a city night, and the other car stops just ahead and parks. And as he's getting out of his car to go to a restaurant, he sees that that driver gets out and seems to get out with some purpose and starts walking rather quickly toward him. 
And so he starts to prepare himself. Okay, this is how I'm going out. You know, we're, we're going to meet here. And so he, he starts to walk toward the man. And then suddenly he realizes after he's been walking toward the man and trying to work up his own confidence, after about five seconds, the man sort of stops, pauses, and turns around. He thinks, wow, all right. I'm something. You know, as soon as I stuck my chest out, he realized what he was in for, and he, he turned around and left. Until my friend turns around and realizes that just behind him, to the left and to the right, are his two sons, college age, both six foot three, six foot four. And the guy is not at all scared of him, but rather of the posse behind him who are standing there. And as he turns and looks and suddenly sort of feels a bit deflated, they just say, we got it, Dad, don't worry. That's very much the situation of the Christian here. That we are, we are so inclined to think we run off freely on our own and we're left all to our own and we need to muster up some strength and perhaps finagle our way to some wisdom and guidance. But all along, Christ is with us. And we tend to think that perhaps he died and he sacrificed and he gave so much and now he's enjoying a well-deserved vacation. And it's on us. It's on each and every one of us not to foil it, not to screw it up, not to give it away. And yet here we, we learn that he continues to give and he insists on gracing and he provides for every step of the way by his word. And we see third, that he doesn't just give and grace and provide and lead, but he does it with a purpose. There's a goal to his word, and there's an end or a telos to his grace. Look at verse 12. He gives these offices to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Notice that the word... The offices of the word. In our day, the pastors and teachers who are to remind us, encouraging and exhorting us with the word, are there to equip the holy ones, the saints, all the Christian men and women of the congregation, that they might go about the task of ministry, of service. Ministry is for everyone. That's the image here. That's the calling here. And ministry is not only for everyone, but ministry is unto a glorious goal, building up the body of Christ. In other words, Jesus is going to provide power and instruction so that we can actually strengthen and sustain one another by his grace. As we are attentive to his word, as we are led by his leaders, as we're reminded of his ongoing, incessant desire to grace us, we are then strengthened and equipped that we can minister to one another and that we can build up the body of Christ. And so we see that the exalted, ascended Christ wants to grace us so that we can give unto others. He wants to send blessing to us so that we can sacrifice for the sake of others. This is why Jesus, before he departed, could say crazy things. He would say things like, you will do much more than I have done. That's one of those startling statements. He, of course, doesn't mean that you're going to sort of atone for multiple worlds. He's only atoned for the sins of one. That's not the image. 
It's rather you're going to go further. You're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You're going to live longer. He has come and he's departed and, and you're going to go the distance as a Christian, ministering, encouraging and exhorting others around you until your last dying breath. He's describing how by his grace and through the provision of his word, the church is going to build itself up. And notice, notice his goal is not just that we get through by the skin of our teeth. In verse 7, he says something rather remarkable. He says, grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And as you read on at the end of verse 10, he says that he does this that he might fill all things. The grace that's given is not meager. It's not Scrooge-like. It's not just enough. It's not something that will simply keep you alive. But Jesus is in the business of gracing so that you are filled, so that you are overflowing. It's, it's an image that's popped up already twice in Ephesians at the end of chapter 1, the last verse, where the one who is himself full is going to fill all things. And then at the end of chapter 3, where he speaks of how he's going to fill all things again with all the fullness of God, that Jesus is in the business of largesse of liberality, of generosity. He's not a miser. He's not helping you eke along. He's not designing a, a journey where you're going to just barely have sort of subsistence existence. But by his word and through his grace, he wants you to flourish, as we saw looking at the Sermon on the Mount over the past weeks. By his word and through his ministry, he wants you to grow up by his word and through his ministry, he wants you to help build up the body of Christ. And so the, the goal and the vision is not small, and it's not mere subsistence, but it's flourishing and fullness and nothing short of glory. And that's why as we mark Ascension Sunday, the first thing to remember is that the exalted, ascended Christ who now is enjoying the joy of God's own glory, is not content to have it alone, but that he has it now longing to share that blessing with you, longing to fill your heart with that happiness, not with earthly trifles, not with little daily dollops of grace that will somehow help you get a little bit further, but rather that he would overwhelm you with the joy and the smile of heaven. And he does that by coming alongside you, by going to the right hand, but by remaining with us through his word. But by going to the Father's exalted glory and the right hand of his throne, but doing so that he can continue to provide for you in an authoritative, effective, powerful way, so that whatever deep valley you may be in, whatever fearful alienation you may feel, we can remember the words that Jesus gave his disciples at the end of Matthew's account of the gospel. Before he told them that going, they should go about making the process of disciples, baptizing and teaching, he first told them that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him, and then he reminded them that he will always be with them, even to the end of the age. 
that they go out, we go out, knowing we don't go alone. Knowing we don't journey on our own, knowing we don't stand in our own strength, knowing we don't chart our own course, but that the Word directs, that the Word equips, and that the body, by His grace, builds itself up. Let's pray and ask God to bless us in that way. God, we thank you that the Christ who died and who rose has now ascended on high. We thank you that we see his love for us in what he willingly suffered on our behalf. And we thank you that even now as he is alive and in your presence, enjoying the fullness of your right hand in your heavenly presence, that he longs to share it with us. Oh, Father, we confess that so often we forget that. So often we live as if, we posture as if we are on our own, performing for you, competing with others, oftentimes failing, sometimes presuming to succeed. We lay down those attempts at your feet. We confess that they are futile. And we delight in the fact that you have given us grace and you have promised never to leave us nor to forsake us. And we rejoice and exult in the promise of Christ, who even now from your right hand continues as our servant king, not only washing our feet, not only dying on the cross for our behalf, but now giving the measure of grace that we, each and every one of us, need this very day by his word. And so we lift his name on high and pray his grace come down yet again for our sake.